0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. No one's good, no one's too good for a children's song. Those are, those are just lovely. but let's begin today. We're going to be on question 75. We're speaking today about the return of Christ. Um, to believe in, in Christ's coming is, uh, is to, put, to put it simply, has always been a feature of Christian believing. And even despite uh, the fact that he has not yet come, uh, which, which has been to the great disappointment of many generations, uh, we continue to persist in this belief. Um, although there are many today who say, well, you know, it's taking too long, let's just forget about it. That's not something you really need to hold on onto. Um, but I think uh, you'll see today that um, it, it is an essential feature of Christian believing. It's actually the cause of Christian hope that Christ's return to this earth um, is something that uh, we look forward to. Um, because, what, what, what's the alternative? The alternative is just that this world continues on to just fly around in the universe, uh, um, and and to be unredeemed. Um, the completion of redemption, um, from the Christian perspective, is Christ coming, uh, in judgment and in glory. Um, to judge both the living and the dead. So, question seventy-five. How should you live in light of Jesus' coming return for judgment? Because I do not know when Jesus will come, I must be ready to stand before him each and every day of my life. I should eagerly seek to make him known to others, and I should encourage and support the whole church as best I can to live in readiness for his return. Um, No one knows the the hour. Uh, This is um, uh, to say that um, there have been many people through through history who have said he's coming next week, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I remember being um, being a priest in California, and there was this group, you may have heard of them on the news, but uh, this group of people were so uh, expectant of the Lord's return at any moment, and they had a date set, uh, they were taking out second and third mortgages on their house uh, to, to do all kinds of things, like stockpile food, and uh, some people were just taking out mortgages and giving it away, because they said, well, <coughs> we don't need it, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, this, this causes great ruin, um, because the kind of radical discipleship to which we're called in light of Christ's coming um, is not of a sort that sort of throws caution to the wind, um, but of a sort that, that, um, that in which we seek uh, not only sanctification, uh, in which we seek uh, to make the gospel known, uh, but also to support the church. Um, in her calling to wait for the, for the Lord's return. Um, we're, we Americans are not terribly good about this, I, I should say. We're, we're really good at being church members, and we're really good at kind of sitting in pews and, and, uh, and participating, uh, but this active involvement in the life of the church, this even sacrificial involvement, <coughs> um, <coughs> is absolutely essential to Christian life. Um, and I can say in my own life, um, that the kind of encouragement which I gained from from throwing myself into the church's life has been has been immense. Um, there's there's something very ordinary about a parish church, isn't there? I mean, look around. This this if if someone was in central casting for churches, they'd do something like this, right? It would be this building. And it would be you people, right? <laughs> because because it's just to say you want it to kind of look nice, and you want. To, but undergirding all of this is is to put it simply um, an eschatological reality that we cannot see. Um, it is it is um, it has already happened. Yes, Christ coming, but also not yet. We're still waiting for the fullness to take place. Um, and, and so uh, there's a calling upon every Christian's life uh, to be an encouragement to other Christians. Um, I, I can say this as well. You know, we, have, we witness a lot of bad behavior in the church, don't we? Like really bad behavior. Um, we witness bad behavior just like you witness bad behavior in a family. Um, and I'm really starting to see in my own life, bad behavior is often caused by discouragement. Um, and very often, some of you may have been a member of a church where it was just utterly discouraging anyone. Like, ah, it's just so awful. And you've got to think, oh, this is just so depressing. Like, if I have to hear another message about how I just need to work harder to love my neighbor better, um, I'm just going to leave. <laughs> that's it. Um, because that's not encouragement, is it? Um, it's, it's, not, it's not an encouragement to hear, you need to try harder. Um, it's instead an encouragement to have someone uh, sit with you in your morning, uh, to have someone um, uh, uh, pray with you, to have someone sing with you, um, to have someone bring a meal when your family's in crisis. Um, so if you want to be encouraged by the church, I think uh, the, the, the best way to do it is to seek to be encouragement to others. Um, but if you need encouragement, please, please do let me know. Um, but to live in readiness for the return um, is to seek um, to, well, because here's part of the problem, right? Have you ever had to wait for something for an interminably long time, like a doctor's appointment? And what is it that you say? I'm never gonna see this doctor. Or, I am never gonna get my driver's license. <laughs> um, it's, there's kind of there's discouragement that sets in. But I always remember uh, sitting in the California DMV and I'd watch my number get closer and closer and <laughs> closer. <laughs> right? And and sometimes I'd sit by somebody who'd have a who'd have a number, and and, and he would he would his number would be called, and he'd turn and he's like, it won't be that bad. You know. um, is this to say that that living in expectation of Christ's coming is is in itself an encouragement? Is it not? Um, especially, and this is something that I'm kind of going on, but um, you know we're gonna have a we're gonna have a funeral here at Christ Church in two weeks for Linda Burnside, who many of you saw. Um, you know she attended. She attended Christ Church straight up till her death. Um, but what an encouragement to see someone called home, yeah, in the midst of, of this, this expectation which we have. Um, and to see her carry on through pain and illness and through um, she often had bouts with confusion, <laughs> but but she she kept at it. Um, so this should be this should be an encouragement to us. Should you be afraid of God's judgment? The unrepentant should fear God's judgment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. I have no reason to fear the coming judgment, for my judge is my Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves me, died for me, and intercedes for me. The Christian looks forward to judgment not as a kind of um, uh, either, uh, well, thing of great fear, or even, finally, you know, well, sometimes it is, but uh, sometimes people have said, well, finally, all the wicked are going to get their comeuppance. You know, isn't that a great hope? <laughs> but, but listen to what's said. Um, the unrepentant should fear God's judgment. Um, but for those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. And we have no reason to fear judgment. In fact, we should look forward to judgment, because what does it do? sets everything right, makes everything whole. Um, and also, uh, the judge you're going to meet is Jesus himself. Um, wouldn't it be great if you got a parking ticket and you realized that the judge was your friend or your brother? Um, I won't tell my story about meeting the Marlin Municipal Judge. Great man. Uh, but, but as it turns out, he, 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 was, he wanted to be my friend. It was the weirdest thing. But, I mean, I, well, I, had a, I had a good case, so that was important. Um, but to say that, that um, it's often a fearful thing to fall under judgment, isn't it? Um, and if any of you have ever been in, involved in some kind of case like that, you know how, how truly troubling it can be. Um, but we have no reason to fear judgment because our judge is our savior. And not only um, do we have that, but we know that he loves me. We know that literally, he loves us. We know that he died for me, and that he intercedes for me. What does Scripture mean when it tells you to fear God? It means that I should live mindful of His presence, walking in humility as His creature, resisting sin, obeying His commandments, and reverencing Him for His holiness, majesty, and power. Um, anyone see the Babylon Bee article a couple years, a couple, week, a couple weeks ago, where it's kind of you know anybody read the Babylon Bee? It's like Christian satire. Okay, this was magnificent. It, it, was, a, it was a story about a uh, congregation asked for God to reveal his glory, thousand dead. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> um, and I just, I laughed my head off for minutes. It was just like, I can't, I can't take it. I was in stitches. Um, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? Um, his glory is revealed a bit. The curtain held back a bit. Um, And yet, um, it's not as though uh, we come to church on Sundays and kind of participate in a kind of parody, is it? Um, We actually come to church to meet the living God. Um, There's actually a church in town, it's up off off of Elm, uh, and they put on their sign, uh, instead of saying service at 10 o'clock, it says throne room experience at (laughs) 10 (laughs) o'clock. And I love it. Every time I drive by it, I think, this is magnificent. Because <laughs> it's so right, isn't it? And yet, in Scripture, to go into the throne room of God is a fearsome thing, isn't it? I mean, you think about Isaiah, seeing the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, it's a fearsome thing. And what does he say? Woe is me, yes. Um, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And... and and he sees, what what does he notice about the angels? Yeah, they cover their faces with their wings, these seraphs. But this is not the kind of fear uh, that we have about death or the fear that we have about um, people that might abuse us. Um, This is fear of God's glory. Um, which leads us to be mindful of his presence daily. It's one of my favorite, some of my favorite authors, um, what is a French author, Dick Cassade, who writes of the sacrament of the present moment, that in every single moment of our lives, there is this um, outpouring of God's presence constantly. Um, You may have read Brother Lawrence, the practice of the presence of God, yes? Um, God's presence is not revealed to us, why? Because we die. And, and yet he's there. Um, his presence is something we must practice. To walk in humility as his creature. To, to, to come into the glory of God is, is to be deeply humbled. Um, also to resist sin and obey his commandments. Um, and reverencing him for his holiness, majesty, and power, as the scripture says. Um, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, and that holiness does not refer to um, him sort of being uh, verboten or uh, something like that, uh, but being completely other. Um, so, for a human being to meet God uh, means to be, means to yes, uh, meet the one in whose image you are made. But God is not like you. So we reverence him for his holiness, his majesty, and his power. Should you pass judgment on sinners or non-Christians? No, God alone judges those outside the church. The church may proclaim God's condemnation of sin and may exercise godly discipline over members who are unrepentant, but I am called only to judge between right and wrong, to judge myself in the light of God's holiness, and to repent of my sins. We did do these last week, but um, I think these certainly bear repeating through time. Which is that um, our, our posture towards those outside the church and towards those in deep sin needs to always be one of humility, one of patience, uh, one of a lack of judgment. Um, but there is, and I think this is really important, we, every Christian is under authority. Do you agree with that? Hey, we are. We all are. We're under authority. Um, and I'm under authority. Um, We really need, uh, and, and at times we need it desperately, we need somebody to say, what you have done is not right. Um, and, and that's why uh, the prayer books have always had uh, a spot where for notorious uh, sinners, uh, the, the priest of the parish can, can inform you kindly that you are not to be receiving communion um, until you've been reconciled to your neighbor, or until, this, uh, until you've been uh, sought repentance and have been reconciled to God. Um, and I've only, I've only ever resorted to this on a couple occasions. <laughs> Sometimes I'll tell warring spouses, you really ought not receive communion until you fix this up. Um, I very often uh, told uh, people that were just stirring up trouble in the church and were just belligerent about it, you know, I'll, I'll take them aside and say, listen, what you're doing is not right. Um, it's even worse that you would come and you would, you would outwardly express the unity that we have as Christians through the sacrament when you're not. It's a, it's a kind of lie that's going on. And usually that's enough for people to say, oh, I had no idea it was that serious. <laughs> I say, It's very serious. Um, uh, so that's, that's an important thing to say. And, and in all but one case, I, I really only know of uh, one man who's just been simply not allowed to receive communion. Um, but they, they're always heartbroken that this has been the case. Um, it actually speaks to our being made for communion with God, right? That, that something strikes us when we say uh, if, if that, if that possibility is revoked um, or, or we're encouraged not to seek that, um, it says immediately, oh, I didn't realize how terrible this was. <laughs> and sometimes you just need that outward, that outside perspective to say yes. Alright. How do you judge yourself? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I judge myself by examining my conscience. I may use the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, or other equivalent scriptures, as well as godly counsel, to help me see my sins. A regular examination of conscience is an essential portion of a spiritual life, or of a spiritual rule. I think Father Canary and I can say it. Yes, it's an essential part of a, of a rule of life, is a, is a regular examination of conscience. Um, and this you know, the saints tell us this should happen just about every day. Um, you're sitting, praying evening prayer or something like that, or really compliments even better, and you just take that time to say these are my faults from the day, and, and just ask God to help you. Um, there are some really powerful tools here. We have the Ten Commandments, don't we? It's a great tool. <laughs> um, I've often helped people to prepare, prepare for confessions just using the Ten Commandments, and it's like, I didn't realize what a terrible sinner I am. Well, yeah, there it is. <laughs> um, or the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, read all three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you'll see, especially if you think, well, I haven't done anything really bad, then you'll read the, thing, you'll read the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll say, oh, God, what a sinner I am. <laughs> because you'll see, for instance, you might come in justifying yourself, oh, I've never murdered anyone, so let's move on to the next commandment. Um, oh, I've never committed adultery. Oh, I'm good there, too. Read the Sermon on the Mount. What do you get? Oops! <laughs> um, uh, uh, I have no reason for pride, and, and anyone reading the reading the Sermon on the Mount should immediately be brought to this recognition. Oh, what a sinner I am! It's a view into God's holiness. I really do think that's the Sermon on the Mount, and and in fact, I think Matthew sets this up really, really, really well, because in Matthew's rendering, the Sermon on the Mount is is a almost depicted as a re-giving of the law. Um, And remember, first giving of the law, how does God give the law? We're going to talk about this. He speaks the Ten Commandments from the cloud over the mountain, right? And the people hear it. That's what sets the Ten Commandments apart, is that the people hear it, and then they ask, oh, please don't speak to us anymore, because we'll die. Sermon on the Mount is the most beautiful thing. If you think about it from the perspective of the Incarnation, And when he had sat down, he opened his mouth and he taught them. The living God in the flesh sits down and opens his mouth and he teaches. Not from a cloud, not from the sky, but with the people. Um, And by the way, he he is not a hypocrite. (laughs) He is preaching and practicing what he preaches. How does the church exercise its authority to judge? A priest acting under the authority of a bishop may bar a person from receiving communion because of unrepentant sin or because of enmity with another member of the congregation until there is clear proof of repentance and amendment of life. But the authority Christ gave to his church is more often exercised by declaring God's forgiveness and absolution. I'm going to tell you a story. I, like, I heard this story about a couple of years ago, and I continue to tell it. A friend of mine in North Carolina had been a Methodist pastor most of his life, he's now an Anglican priest, and he had a, a couple in his congregation, they were married, and this, the woman came to him just in tears, and she said, my husband continually commits adultery against me, I've had it up to here, he comes home now and he tells me about it, and I, I don't have any skills, I'm, I'm basically stuck in this, in this marriage, there's nothing I can do, um, I have to stay married to him. I don't know what else I'd do. So uh, this wonderful man said, well, bring him in. I want to talk to him. <laughs> and so, so they come to the office. And he's I mean, wonderful. He says to the man, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm going to be straight with you. You are not allowed, because of what your wife has told me you've been doing, you are not allowed to receive communion as long as this behavior continues. then he said, if you come up to receive, um, I will take that as a sign of your repentance. So, Sunday comes around. Guy's there with his wife. He comes up to receive. My friend says in his ear, I take this as a sign of your repentance. The man just sticks up. takes the host, puts it, on his, puts it on his hand, he receives. The next day, he dropped dead of a heart attack. So lest you think that what the New Testament says about some have become sick and have even died because they're receiving the sacrament in sin, you've got another thing coming. To receive Christ's presence in the Eucharist in sin and arrogance is horrid. Um, Because what you're saying is, I want grace, but I don't want it for my sanctification. I want my sin to be overlooked. I want to come up to the rail as is, just as I am, but not the right way. (laughs) (laughs) Not the right attitude. Um, So I offer that to you as as a way to think about it. Um, Well, powerful thing, right? Because she said to him a couple weeks later, Uh, You know, I didn't know what to do, and there was the answer. Um, So, there you have it. Okay. Apostles Creed Article 3. Faith in the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. Um, This may surprise some of you, but we worship the Holy Spirit this was a surprise to many christians in the fourth century uh, who started to hear hymns by in church uh, that were praising the holy spirit as god um, and they were disturbed by this um, but this is at the heart of the church's teaching that the holy spirit is uh, a person of the trinity is god himself and is therefore worthy of our honor and worship um, and i should say uh, the divinity of the Holy Spirit is a thing stitched up in the church's memory uh, in uh, the, the, uh, the first council of Constantinople in 381, in fact. Uh, they not only resolved the Aryan dispute, but they also, uh, well, they removed 20 uh, Macedonian bishops from the council uh, who persisted in fighting against the Holy Spirit's divinity, and that's why they called them Pneumatomachians, uh, they were kind of heretic. Um, So Christians have always believed that the Holy Spirit is divine and worthy of honor and worship. What principal names does the New Testament give to the Holy Spirit? Jesus names the Holy Spirit, Paraclete, the one alongside. This signifies comforter, guide, counselor, advocate, and helper. Other names for the Holy Spirit are Spirit of God, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of Christ, and Spirit of God. Has anyone of you ever had a situation in which you desperately needed an advocate? Yeah, okay, good, good, good. I'm not talking to people who don't know what it's like to need an advocate. Um, uh, has anyone, have, have you had a legal dispute and you needed a, you needed a counselor? I have. Um, this is an amazing thing uh, that the New Testament is talking about when it speaks of the Holy Spirit as being an advocate, being a counselor. Um, Most of the time when this happens, we don't know what to do. We're lost. Uh, We're mired in our own thought. And sometimes we just need somebody to come alongside us and say, this is the next thing. Do this, do that. Or someone who takes over our spiritual life for a time. Um, Paul speaks of, of even when, even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, what, what happens? The Holy Spirit cries out within us with groans too deep for words. Um, uh, Abba, Father. Um, the Holy Spirit is given to us directly. And I think we have to say this uh, because, uh, well, it needs to be said. We Christians believe that we're actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit is sort of over there or over there, but where? Somehow indwelling us bodily. Um, and this is, this is to say, uh, well, one of, my, one of my great mentors, uh, who is an Oxford theologian, <laughs> he, loved to, he loved to say, <laughs> he'd ask kids, little kids, where is Jesus? And they would say, he's in my heart. And he would say, Balderdash. He's <laughs> like, the Holy Spirit is in your heart. <laughs> And you should thank him for that. That's, that's <laughs> magnificent. Um, but you see, the point, the, the point is that um, what the New Testament speaks about is that, uh, is that the Son has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Now, of course, we can all say, just in kindness to little kids, like, yes, Jesus lives in you and all that, right? Um, you know, and, and Paul certainly speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and all that, right? Uh, and so let's not be let's not be overly. And I think this is just kind of a, it was he was trying to get these kids uprooted from their kind of Sunday school answers. Um, but but it's it's very much the case, yes, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is 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 um, well, in a sense, it is the Christian life. What are the mini- What are the particular ministries of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit imparts life in all its forms throughout God's creation unites believers to Jesus Christ, indwells each believer, convicts believers of sin, applies the saving work of Jesus to the believer's life, guides the church into truth, fills and empowers believers through spiritual fruit and gifts given to the church, and gives understanding of the scripture which he inspired. It's a wonderful list. (laughs) Let's say a little bit about some of it. The Holy Spirit imparts life in all its forms throughout God's creation. Oh, no Holy Spirit, no life. No life in the universe, no life here, uh, everything would die. Remember, the creation of Adam, what happens? Uh, yeah, God makes a mud a mud man, okay? <laughs> and then breathes into mud man, and mud man becomes a living being. Yes? An amazing, an amazing thing. And and the, the teaching here is really simple. It's that ancient people understood, and we should understand this too. That life is animated by the presence of the God of, God, of the God of all. Um, God is a spirit, uh, and we are we are animated by His spirit. Um, I love using this analogy. I I at one point was spending a lot of time working on my cars. I may be entering that phase now again, uh, but but I I bought a pneumatic tool set. What a pneumatic tool is—it's powered by air. And you think how powerful can air be? Very powerful. Okay. Um, I recently had bridge work done. All my front six teeth are fake. I'll just uh, announce that to you now. But I got—I got a new bridge on my because it broke. And the dentist uses a drill. How's the drill powered? By the air. Incredibly powerful. The thing spins a million times, you know. Uh, but that is to say that. Uh, that the, Holy, that the Christian life is powered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and anytime time we think, well, the Christian life is powered by well, the muscles in my arms, I've got it completely wrong. The, Holy, the, the Christian life is a pneumatic life. And that's, that's actually a good technical Greek word to use. It's pneumatic. Um, the Holy Spirit unites believers to Jesus Christ. Um, how are we united to Christ? First off, through our believing, yes? And how, how may we believe? By the Holy Spirit. Um, and by our baptism as well, yes? And how are we baptized? By the Holy Spirit. Okay. So uh, Christians understand that every everything in life and every grace is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we to Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells each believer, convicts believers of sin, um, which is a, a wonderful thing. But, look at this. Even when we sin, we sin with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Ow. <laughs> like, you, temple of the Holy Spirit, are sinning, <laughs> and, and it's going to be immediately manifest, isn't it? Immediately clear. Applies the saving, That's that's where it, this is it. Your conscience is not just your mind for the Christian, is it? Whole thing going on inside of you, um, the Holy Spirit imparting knowledge. Apply the Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Jesus to the believer's life. Um, we need, we need uh, the gifts of God's grace given in Christ, uh, not just once but continually. The Holy Spirit guides the church into truth. How's that work? How's that working? Let me say this clearly as I can. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, but churches that are, that are driven by the work of the Holy Spirit, who understand the, the Holy Spirit properly, um, will be driven into truth. Um, why? Well, first they'll be convicted of sin, right? They'll also be convicted of error. Um, And and it needs to be said that understanding that properly um, is is very, very, very important. Um, And that certainly Christians may rebel against the truth and they may rebel against God in their bodies uh, through sin, but uh, the Holy Spirit is always guiding the church. The Holy Spirit fills and empowers believers through spiritual fruit and gifts given to the church. wonderful things that Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians. We, we always need to take to heart that there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Um, <clears throat> this, is, this is very often something that happens in church, and it's kind of a sin that you know, maybe you don't realize it, but, but it happens, uh, where, where you're sitting there in church, and you, and you hear from two pews over, oh, what is that voice like an angel? And you think, why don't I have a voice like that? <laughs> And you find envy in your heart while you're listening to this angelic voice. If you're honest about it, you'll say, yeah, that's happened to me. Um, Well, let me just tell you, you ought to think, I do have that angelic voice. I have it as a member of Christ, a member of the church. Um, We all share in the gifts of other Christians. Um, The fact that you can hear that voice to say, you have it, you have the gift. Um, so we must always kind of think about how um, the gifts, you know, as Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, yes? Okay. So it's for your good that other Christians have gifts. Isn't that, that that's, that's tough <laughs> at a certain point, because then you realize like, oh no, the way that she's been using that gift on me I've hated it, <laughs> and, and, uh, or something like that, right? Um, or my, you know, uh, our guest preacher sure can preach, and oh no, <laughs> but, but there it is. Okay. <laughs> um, and gives understanding of the scripture. The Holy Spirit gives understanding of the scripture which he inspired. Scripture is both pneumatically inspired and pneumatically read. Um... This is, this is essential. Okay, How does the Holy Spirit relate to you? Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to make Jesus known to me, to indwell and empower me in Christ, to bear witness that I am a child of God, to guide me into all truth, and to stir my heart continually to worship and to pray. Um, yes, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit to make himself known to me. I and mean, dwelt and empowered. Um, but Paul says one more thing, which is that the Spirit bears witness in us that we're children of God by this continual crying out to the Father, Abba, Father. Um, in a sense, the, the Holy Spirit is, is a kind of down payment on our salvation. The Holy Spirit guides me into all truth. We may know, we may know that They're Christians who've gone astray. But, um, and I've I've known this through the years, that it's it's not that they were listening to the Holy Spirit and went astray. Almost never is. In fact, uh, there have been some wonderful historical studies of of, uh, 20th century uh, Christian leaders that went astray. And there was always something they could find that was a kind of rebellious sinfulness that they nursed along and then they wind up in error. So bishops having seances for their dead sons with Ouija boards. Next thing you know, devi- denying the virgin birth. Okay, uh, this, is, this is just the way it works. Okay. Um, so rebellion, uh, rebellion will certainly keep you out of the truth, uh, but continual repentance, you'll find it. Um, to stir my heart continually to worship and to pray um, like, lately, I've been getting woken up at three o'clock in the morning. And it's not just because I'm getting old, and okay, that's part of it, um, but it's because I think, I'm, I think I'm experiencing a very serious call to prayer at that hour. And it's the hardest thing in the world to do, because what do I want to do? I just want to fight my body to go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep, please. It's all, you know, you're just, you're just waking up, you just have to go to the bathroom, blah, blah, blah. And, like, I really need to hear it. no. Use it as an opportunity to pray. The Holy Spirit's stirring you up uh, to worship and to prayer. My my, uh, spiritual director kept hitting me with that uh, continually, saying, yeah, yeah, God's waking you up. (laughs) Listen. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? The scriptures teach that through repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven my sins, and dwelled from then on by the Holy Spirit, given new life in Christ by the Spirit, and freed from the power of sin, so that I can be filled with the Holy Spirit." Okay, so this is just something to clarify, but this catechism is written for adults coming to faith for the first time. It's very important to say. It's written to uh, adults who've not been baptized, and, uh, and the teaching here is completely consistent with adults about to be baptized. So what do we say of children? Well, we say of children that uh, when they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, and this leads them to a life of repentance and faith. Now, is that automatic? Oh, no, no, because children are rebellious, like, and they do all kinds of things. Uh, They need the influence of their parents, they need the influence of their church. They need the grace of God uh, to, to, uh, to live out that life of repentance and faith. So I wanna make that very clear. This is written to adults, and the scriptures teach this, that what is it that Peter says on the day of Pentecost to the gathered crowd when they say they're cut to the heart? And they say, what do we do? What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. Or you will receive the Holy Spirit. I am forgiven my sins and dwell from then on by the Holy Spirit. Given new life in Christ by the Spirit, and freed from the power of sin, so that I may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, let me just say this. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, repentance is the first way. <laughs> um, if you've ever studied, kind of, and, and this sounds funny coming from me, but, but here it is. If you've ever studied the great revivals of history, do you know what the first thing that happened was? In every case, there was widespread widespread repentance for sin across the board every time. Widespread repentance. Um, Any time uh, that, that I'm talking to someone. Uh, especially a priest who's leading a church, and they say, "I just don't know what's happened. This church is just dead." I say, "Call the people to repentance," because without repentance, the Holy Spirit will not will not take root in their lives. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't take root in their lives, this thing will die. So repentance is the first thing. Uh, so hear that. <laughs> um, the, the surest way through a dead a dead church and a dead uh, a dead life. It, well, if you're, if your life is just dead and not bearing fruit, repentance. Okay, let's keep moving, because I think we can finish out this section in the next five minutes. All right, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the very character of Jesus in developing through the through the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ah, the fruits of the Spirit. Um, if you haven't memorized the fruits of the Spirit, it's a good thing to memorize. Uh, They come out of Galatians chapter five, and what is it that Paul says at the end of this list? You know, yeah. Against such things there is no law. Um, If you want to have a good examination of conscience, look through the fruits of the Spirit. I've been displaying the fruits of the Spirit. Um, But the Holy Spirit brings fruitfulness, brings forth great fruit. What is it that Jesus says to His disciples? abide in me you will bear much fruit yes Uh, abiding in jesus happens through the work of the holy spirit that's how we do it and always when the the holy spirit bears fruit we find that love flourishes joy flourishes peace flourishes Um, this is an absolutely essential thing we should expect that in the ongoing life that in our ongoing life in christ peace should be brought to our families Peace should be brought to our relationships. Peace should be brought to our neighborhoods. Patience. Someone's gonna con- convict me this morning. Patience. Ah, what do I need patience for? <laughs> uh, but but patience, it's to say that we live in this, we live in this world as I have to have it, and I have to have it now, and I have to be comfortable all the time. And any discomfort I experience is a violation of my human rights. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? The many gifts of the Holy Spirit include faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, other languages, the interpretation of other languages, administration, service, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, and others. The Spirit gives these to individuals as He wills. This is to say that we as Anglicans believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. you know, I, I kind of like to say this, every Anglican, you know, who's, who's a good Anglican is a charismatic, right? Because we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we expect them. In fact, as we were writing the catechism, if you love this, I was, I was on the team that wrote the catechism and I was at one point responsible for the feedback loop and I got this kind of rather terse email from this guy who said, you know, uh, it seems like there's no room in the catechism for cessationism. And cessationism is this kind of idea that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have just stopped after the first century. And I, respond, I responded very simply, it was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> I repent of that, that was not, that was not kind. But, but it was basically, uh, basically just to say, yeah, that's basically right. Uh, you know, listen, I, oh my goodness. The kind of blind eye you have to turn to, the magnificent outpouring of the works of the Holy Spirit in the world today, in order to believe that, is beyond the pale. Um, I mean, I would just say, my own life would be a complete lie were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit in this ongoing, dynamic way. I mean, I've personally witnessed miracles, I've witnessed people healed of cancer, I've witnessed all kinds of things in my life as a priest, and even before that. Um, and not only that, but gifts of prophecy. Let me tell you, uh, Jerry and Stacy Kramer, when they were here, they came to our dining room after lunch, and they sat with my wife and I, and... Stacy started to prophesy over us. It was powerful, like crazy powerful. Um, there's been stuff going on in our house since then. Um, so, so every Anglican is a charismatic. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We expect them. Why does the Holy Spirit give, the, give these gifts? The Holy Spirit equips and empowers each believer for service in the worship of Jesus Christ, for the building up of his church, and for the witness and mission of the world. Okay. Paul says this very clearly. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, what should you do? Seek to build up the church. Okay, this is where I'm going to end. Our vision at Christ Church is to build up the church and make disciples through the planting of churches in university towns and campuses. That very first thing is to build up the church. Does it mean to build up this church? Well, Partly. But no, we don't say to build up our own church. We say to build up the church, capital C. Um, and and I will just say this. In seeking that above everything else, to build up the church, which means to build up believers, to build up people, uh, to build up an encouragement, uh, to build up not just our own church, but others, um, I'm constantly having conversations with people who are like, you know, I'm kind of thinking about this church, and then thinking about, one. well, you know, how can, I help, how can I help you find a church? Um, we seek to build up the church, and I will say that because of that, we have seen, we have seen abundant, abundant manifestations of the spirit. Um, and I'm humbled by it. Um, I've seen marriages healed. I've seen people's lives radically turned around. Um, I've seen, well, the growth of this parish has been magnificent, um, but I keep going back to that wonderful, uh, that wonderful word from Paul. Since you are eager for manifestations for, for manifestations of the Spirit, seek to build up the church. Um, and of course, I would turn you to Ephesians chapter four, uh, verses twelve through sixteen, um, in which uh, Paul Paul essentially says that that uh, when 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 everything is working together in the church and this is a work of the Holy Spirit, when every, when every joint with which it is supplied is working by the Holy Spirit, what happens? Oh. Love is built up, um, and, and bodily growth is the result. Um, so, listen, I'm going to say this clearly. Like, in so many churches in America today, we don't have a church growth strategy problem. We have a, we have a problem of being... Uh, being being stubborn against the Holy Spirit Um, and so uh, we've got to get about the work of praying for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our work as Christians we also have to be uh, be intentional about praying and praying daily uh, for the building up of the church and we have to sacrifice for the building up of the church and sacrifice deeply Um, and so that would be something I'd ask you to say you know, what has God given you in your life in terms of, in terms of gifts, in terms of treasure, in terms of, of, uh, of uh, just insight, maybe, uh, that he's calling you to pour out in abundance and sacrifice on the church? Um, because, let me tell you this, there's no price too high <laughs> to see the church flourish. There's no price too high to see the, the ab- abundant outpouring of the Spirit upon the church today. Um, because, uh, well, We worship a living God, not a dead God. And the way that we experience that God is alive is through the living Holy Spirit, uh, living and dwelling in us. Um, So more next week. We're going to talk about the church next week. And that's often very fun. It is fun.